You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So we've been taking a few weeks here, just kind of a loose series talking about the the church body, the local church. And we've seen realities that the church is both a partnership in the gospel and that it is a partnership, that both of these things coming from the book of Philippians, that opening prayer of Paul, where he's thankful to the Philippian church for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so the, the local church, the local body, the church body, is both a partnership in the gospel and it is a partnership. And we are continuously, as this church body, by our very nature, as the body of Christ, we are a body that is on the move. Jesus, his body is a living body. It has action. It is not lying in state somewhere for people to come walk by and look at what was the body of Christ. It is a a living organism in a very real way. The, The church body is doing something as the body of Christ. We are continuously working the the glories of the gospel that we are partnered in. We're working the glories of this gospel into every corner of our life and then onto every corner of our world. That's kind of been a couple of the themes we've put out there, I've put out there in these past few weeks. But I just have a, a, a check this week that we need to pause and discuss something again. How can we say what our nature, what our mission, what our frame or structure ought to be? If, if I'm going to stand up here and say authoritatively somewhat, what, authoritatively what we ought to be as a church, what our nature should be, what our mission should be, what our frame or our structure should be, how can we say what that ought to be? I'm using the word ought Intentionally, it's, it, has, it has a moral obligation. This ought to be, the church ought to be this way. By what authority does the church live? And this is a huge issue to, to get settled. This is a huge issue for us to come to an agreement on because if a church is not agreed upon this, it will go nowhere, except maybe two places. It might go two places. It might go to fruitless apathy. If we can't decide what is authoritative for us, then we end up just in fruitless apathy, not going anywhere, not doing anything, just kind of bland existence. Because there's no, when there's no authority, there's no structure, there's no push, there's no direction. There's just an amoebus blob of nothing. If we can't agree on what the authority is, we might end up in fruitless apathy 
or we can end up with a splitting war over preferences. And everyone gets to have their personal say and everyone gets to decide that this is the way or that is the way or this is the way and, and we end up just fracturing into hundreds of different personal splinters if we cannot decide what our authority is. Where does that lie? We know that Jesus is the head of the church. If we are his body, Colossians tells us, which is again kind of a giving, the, question, giving the, the answer away to the question where our authority lies. But Colossians tells us, the book of Colossians tells us that Christ is the head of this body. And so that means that when it comes to our nature, when it comes to our mission, when it comes to our frame, one opinion matters more than any other opinion. And you're all going to think, well, Darren, Darren's going to say it's his. No, not mine. <laughs> There's one opinion that matters more than all. It isn't the pastor's. It isn't any of the single elders in the church. It isn't any single member. There is one opinion that matters more than any others, and it is Jesus's. It is his church. He is the head of it, and he, it is his opinion, matters more than all the others. So then the question we got to then be asking, what does Jesus want with us? And further, how could we possibly know what that is? How can we possibly know what Jesus wants for us? How can we possibly know what Jesus wants? What does he want? How could we know it? And the answer is, we have been given a divine revelation in the 66 books of the Bible that by its very existence as the word of God, the Theonoustos breathed out by God, as the very word of God, as its existence ontologically, as it is, as the word of God, means that it has the authority because it is the word of God. The church that lives led by the Holy Spirit, that prime, the church that lives, this church that honors Jesus, that church lives led by the Holy Spirit who primarily reveals himself through the pages that he has inspired. There are many places that we look to for our authority outside of God's word. That's my big idea for this morning. I think I actually have it on here somewhere. Oh yeah. The church lives, how? Led by the Holy Spirit. We, have, we believe in a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit actually revealed to us from the pages of Scripture. But the church lives led by the Holy Spirit who primarily reveals himself through the pages of Scripture that he inspired. But there are many different places that we often go to to get authorities. To get our, our direction on what the church should look like. Many times, it's just the church's own preferences. And, and it's easy to, to beat up on this, but I mean, we all know this because we all are humans and we all have preferences. I have a ton of preferences. <laughs> I have a ton of music styles that I like. I have a ton of decoration styles that I like. I have an order of service that I may be more comfortable with. I have a time of day that I like. I have all sorts of preferences. We all have all sorts of preferences. We all have certain amounts of time that we want this to last. How long is it? What time is it going to be at? We all have our own preferences. And for many, that's really the only question that's asked. 
when it comes to finding a church. The question is asked, which one lines up most with my preferences? And I go and I enjoy or I like this one or I don't like it. And so I guess I have a list of 15 preferences and this one hits 8 out of 15. So then there. And then the minute that it starts cutting some of those preferences, then we have problem. problems. That's one authority. Another authority we often have is tradition. The first reaction that we might get if anything were to change is we'd say something like, well, we've done it this way for forever. You know what that is? That is tradition. That's tradition. There are churches that live their whole lives based mainly on tradition. And let me say this. Tradition is not by nature bad. Not all traditions are bad. There are many things. The fact that we meet and sit in pews, we play, we listen to a piano playing. You know, the early church didn't have a piano player. I don't want to shock you. Early church did not have a piano player. You know why? I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the early church did not have a piano player. The piano didn't exist. <laughs> there was no way to have a piano player. The thing didn't exist yet. And so there's no way. They did not listen to piano music. But it's a tradition that has been adopted. And so you go into churches across the world today, and there's going to be probably a piano in there, and they're going to play some piano music. That's a tradition that we have. There's nothing wrong with traditions. But you have to then at some point ask if tradition held just for tradition's sake is the right way to operate a church. If tradition is not required in Scripture, it cannot be compelled upon the church. It can be adopted. It can be kept. Order of service, the liturgy that we use, is a tradition that this church has. When I came in, I adopted the same liturgy that's been here. Haven't changed really at all that much. Little tweaks here and there. That's a tradition. That's fine. There's a whole movement or that, that, that this, but it cannot be compelled upon the church. It doesn't have to be disposed of, but no tradition found outside of Scripture can become the non-negotiable issue in a local church body. No tradition found outside of Scripture can become the non-negotiable issue in a local church body. It, it cannot be the governing authority, the traditions of the church. Sometimes the authority is our own understanding of happiness. This is a big one today. It flies under the reasoning that what God wants is our happiness. God wants me happy. And you know what? As far as that goes, I kind of affirm that statement. Like there's, a, I think happy is kind of a trite word. But honestly, I, I don't necessarily have a big, uh, big uh, beef with God wants you happy. The question is, though, how does God go about your greatest happiness? That's what we're probably going to have, maybe some disagreement. But our own happiness is often the authority. Because in the, that we take that statement that God wants our happiness, and then we jump the rails and we say, happiness is giving me whatever I want. And then we're back into the whole issue of preferences. There's a whole movement in modern Christianity that flies under this banner. God is loving and he wants you to be happy. He wants you to feel loved. And so then you make the list of all the things that are going to make you feel loved. And that's what God should be. Then that becomes people's authorities. Sometimes our own comfort is our authority. This motive, this is a motive for your own comfort, for our own comfort. 
that all it does is it just prolongs the eventual death of a church. I just want to not be bothered, comforted, making moves only to preserve a status quo, a minimal existence that changes nothing so that it provokes nothing so we can all, so everyone can stay comfortable, but that actually cannot go anywhere because it's too busy staying safe. It's too busy staying safe. Now, all of these motives, like I've that we've gone through, uh, personal preferences, traditions, our own understanding, uh, happiness, comfort, some of these are actually, and all of them really in their proper place are fine things. You are allowed to have preferences. I don't, it's fine. I have them, we all have them. You are allowed to have your own traditions. You may want to celebrate Christmas a certain way. Easter, the celebrations, the, the church calendar that we go through, not biblically mandated to celebrate Christmas, December 25th, to celebrate Easter and whatever moving date we have it. Not biblically mandated. It's a tradition, and I'm fine with it. There's nothing against it, but it isn't, it isn't compulsory. Many of these things are well and fine, but if they contradict God's word, they cannot be allowed to formulate the church and her mission. So what will we stake ourselves upon? What is the authority that lets us know the nature of the church, the mission of the church, the frame of the church? It is the truth of God's word. I put forward some changes in how our church is wired in the past few months. You may have been aware of them. It's caused some of us stir up. I've had people tell me that I've offended them, that I've hurt their feelings, that they had strong feelings, they didn't see any reason to change anything, and I'm okay with all of those answers. Not that I'm offended anybody, that's not my goal. I'm not, my goal is not hurting feelings, but I've had, in the midst of all of those sort of complaints, I've had very few uh, disagreements that have said, these don't agree with scripture. This doesn't agree with the word of God. And there is no authority we can live under except God's word. Anytime we take something else outside of that as our authority, we essentially have removed ourselves the right of being the body of Christ. We no longer are a church because it is not God's word to us that matters, but our word about ourselves. And I, so then I want to just take a, a bit of time to say this is not a new way for the church to conduct herself. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy. That's the last book of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the last, the, the fifth book of your Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 17. But going even back before then, but you can go to Deuteronomy 17. Back in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, they were governed by a text. They were governed by a text. God was the ruler but he had revealed himself in language to Moses. God spoke. And then the people of God recorded what God spoke so that future generations could hear the word from God. The Jewish faith became a faith coming out of a text. Moses wrote these things down in the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. Now, certainly... There are figures throughout the Old Testament who had supernatural encounters with God, right? Where God would show up and speak to them, where we could go like, to the judges and talk about Gideon and having an angel show up and all sorts of supernatural leading. That happened very uniquely and miraculously. 
the bulk of the, the leadership, the bulk of the leading of the church is more along the lines of Deuteronomy 17. Uh, God is giving them commands. This is the second telling of the law. And he's saying that when you go into the promised land and you want to get a king, here's some rules for the king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What is the leader of God's people to do? Make a written copy of God's word to carry with him all the time so that he would have God's authoritative text given to him on how he ought to live his life. God gave him a text. God had revealed himself through his prophets, through Moses, so that his people could clearly know him throughout the ages. And then they began to add to that text. They began to record these things down and add them to authoritative, uh, an authoritative body of work on how they were to live their life. We can go back to Nehemiah which looks like it's way back, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Ezra, Nehemiah, page, uh, go to Nehemiah chapter 8, it's page 475, uh, 474 in your pew Bible. It looks like it's way before Psalms and all the minor prophets, but it's actually way at the end. Like we're going through a whole chunk of the history of Israel, all the minor prophets, the Babylonian captivity, and then now coming back, Ezra comes back and rebuilds the temple, and then Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem, and this is this, this, the new temple being, the temple being rebuilt. So even though this is fairly early seemingly in your Old Testament, this is actually way at the end. And where, are they, where have they landed with this idea of the text? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. Beside, beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Milkajah and Hashem and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand, right? Exactly. Okay. Verse 5, Ezra then opens the book in the sight of all the people 
for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, these other guys helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, the law, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Ezra has seen to the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah has overseen the building of the wall. And now as the gathered people of God, what are they going to do? How are they going to be faithful to what God has for them? They're going to hear the book of the law, God's written revelation given to them. People are going to help explain it, interpret it, help them understand what it's meaning, what the meaning of it is. Why? So that they can see what God has revealed and how they might live in light of his revelation. Psalm 1, we said this morning we, in, our, in our call to worship, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He, this man who meditates on the law day and night, he is like what? He's a tree planted by waters, yielding its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, but not so the wicked. What is it that this blessed man has? What is it that he's doing? He's meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Psalm 1 starts with this. And so then it brings us back around to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we started. That Jesus gives the promise that the Holy Spirit will guide his disciples into truth, that they will record these things down and that the church received these books, that they saw them for what they were, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God had inspired through his Holy Spirit these writings, that the church might be led and guided throughout its life. And so Paul, writing to Timothy, says this about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, we can have the discussion Paul is specifically there speaking of the Old Testament because the New Testament is not gathered yet at this point. The books are out there. They're being passed around and they will be recognized. They are being recognized because they are the word of God and they will be codified at some point. But these, these books are out there. We can have discussion. Peter saw Paul's writings as the word of God. Paul quotes Luke as the word of God and all these things we could go through. But essentially, as scripture is breathed out by God, it is inspired, God has written it. And because God has written it, it therefore, as it exists, has authority. What could speak more authoritatively than God? If God is the one who has written it, what could be more authoritative than that? And verse 17 says that this, this scripture, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. May be complete. Scripture is given, reproof, correction, and error, training, and righteousness, that we might be complete. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is inspired by God, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient to give us what we need to move forward to be the church 
in nature, in mission, and in frame that glorifies God. The authority that we sit under is the authority of this book. So it brings us back to the question, what has the role of authority in this church and also in your own life? What has authority? What tells you who to be, what to do? If it, if the, if it isn't the word of Jesus, if it isn't God's word, then I, don't, I, I worry for you. And where is God's word found? Right here in the pages of Scripture. What has the role of authority in our lives and are we really willing to hear it? Here's why we may not be willing to hear it. It will call us to change. I know it. Every time you open this book, it's going to call you to change. How do I know it? Because we are not perfect. Not a one of us. Every one of us has room for sanctification. And therefore, as all of us are not perfect, as we gather as a local body, it is not perfect. And it needs change and growth because as we are not perfect, the church is not yet perfect. It is being reformed. It is growing. It has its own sanctification almost as it grows in holiness towards God. So when you read the word of God, it will bring about change. And so often when we read it, we don't like it because it's going to force us into the position where we have to see sin and we have to be called to change. It will challenge us in our personal sin and the comforts that we lean upon and it will challenge that. And we will, the, the comforts that we lean upon, then they'll hinder God's work among us. But we must hear it. Because not only does it diagnose our ills, but it also tells us of the remedy. If you want to get rid of hearing about the ills, then you should chuck the word of God. But the trouble is, it's the place where you hear the remedy. When we read that first Peter passage this morning, I wasn't even thinking about it until I read it right there, talking about that you're brought to life through the imperishable seed, which is the word of God. It holds the remedy. Yes, it diagnoses your ill, but it also gives your remedy. The same message that we read condemns us as sinners, tells us that there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness found in a Savior. To refuse to hear its message of the need of repentance is to fail to hear the good news of a Savior. Therefore, let's listen as individuals, as the church. Let's listen to what it has to say and live under the authority of God and his word today. Let's pray. God, give us ears to hear. I desire that, Father, you, not me, not any, in, any individual, that, Father, you would be honored and glorified, that you would be honored and respected, that you would be magnified as you build your church, God, in the way that you, in the, in the way that you have designed and, and declared for her to be. So, Father, I pray that right now you would, in our hearts, Father, in the personal corners of our lives where we have relegated or, or demoted your word as an authority over us. Father, I pray that you'd bring repentance in our own hearts. That God, we would stop elevating ourselves. That we would take our rightful place under you as the creator of all things and in a submission to your word 
You are the God who is. You are the God who has spoken. God, may we hear it. May we repent. And Father, further, as we head into a time of communion, may we, as we hear your word and be brought to repentance, God, may we also rejoice in the gospel that is declared to us through the pages of Scripture, that Christ has died to redeem us. Do your work in our hearts, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.